Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you calling <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Sustaining Open Source Design podcast, where we talk about sustaining open source design, which is a lot about people and community and the role of design in open source and what all that means. So welcome. With me, I have co-hosts Django Scopra and Richard Latour. So we're your hosting team today. And our guests today are from the Alan Turing Institute and are here to talk about a project that they are working on and focusing on diversity and open source. And so on our podcast today, we have Georgia Atkinhead, Bastian greshka Cervaras, and Susanna Fantoni. So welcome, everybody. I'm going to hand it over to you all to introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about your project. Hey, my name is Bastian. I'm a senior researcher at the Alan Turing Institute, working with Susanna and Georgia on the Altspaces project. My background is I'm a bioinformatician by training, but I've been working in participatory citizen science for the last six, seven years now. And that's what we are doing at the Turing Institute, partially at least, together with those two. Hi, I'm Georgia Aitkenhead, and I'm working with Bastian and Susanna on a project called Altspaces. So what Artspaces is, it's a co-designed citizen science platform that we're building as a community. So it's a community of researchers, autistic people, their families, other supporters of autistic people. And the platform will be used to investigate how autistic people's senses affect them in their daily lives as they navigate different environments. So the idea is to have a kind of pragmatic, real-world impact on spaces, how they're designed, how they're managed, that actually benefits autistic people and is also it's research conducted by and for autistic people and a platform built by and for autistic people empowered throughout the process. So I think that's a really vital aspect of it. We are all affiliated with the Alan Turing Institute, Susanna via Artspaces and me and Bastian work together there. It's the UK's National Institute of AI and Data Science and there's lots and lots of interesting projects going on there. Our one is particularly in the program of tools, practices and systems. So looking at what kind of things can we do infrastructurally to change the way we design and build technology so that it's more sustainable, more open and more inclusive. I'm Susanna Fantoni. I part of the project as a participant. I have autism as well as epilepsy. I am co-lead for moderation. Me and my colleague have been working on building the code of conduct in a way that is easy to understand for people of all capabilities and gives voice to as many people as possible without having any issues with the authenticity of those reports and essentially been looking how to make this platform as safe as possible whilst keeping it as free as possible at the same time. So I've been working on that for the past two years, hoping to go a bit further eventually and do a PhD myself. Thank you so much for that introduction, everybody. So just for a little bit more background in the project, how long has that project been going? And I would say as a starter question, like what has been like a key moment in the project for all of you of like something you learned or something that was really, oh, this is amazing because, but yeah, how long has the project been going in total? And then if each of you want to address that question, that'd be great. 
So the program has been going on a cheering for about three or four years now, for so quite a while. Its origins are even further back. So there was a priority setting exercise that was run by a charity called Autistica in the UK, basically bringing together researchers, healthcare professionals and autistic people to work out what were their priorities for autism research, because there's often a disparity between the kind of research that gets funded and the kind of research that autistic people as a whole, not that you can homogenize autistic people, but as a generally as a group tend to prefer. And they found out that one of the main priorities was finding out about sensory processing. And another one was finding out about how autistic people navigate different environments and how those environments could be improved. So Autistica took these priorities and looked for a kind of a solution in terms of how to research and investigate these particular research questions. And they signed a contract with the Turing to do that. They wanted research that was inclusive of autistic people. So Autistica has an amazing track record of empowering autistic people in the research process. And that's not always the case. There's a lot of research organizations and research that gets funded, which is very much from the outside looking in and treating people as specimens. And particularly in the history of autism research, there's been a huge amount of distortion, elision, misunderstanding, and prejudice, in fact, that's been created by overruling autistic people or taking an external perspective rather than an internal one and inviting the people into the research for whom there's most at stake. So then we had a long process of scoping and trying to understand what people would be interested in with like a series of focus groups and workshops and things like that, and then started to build the platform with autistic people. So that's the kind of history of the project so far. And we're currently building the platform with a team of developers at the Turing. One of the huge highlights for me has been the amount of nuance and complexity that having a whole range of perspectives can bring. So some of the focus groups, we discussed moderation of the platform, and I was expecting this to be a relatively straightforward thing. But there was a huge amount of complexity in terms of who gets to report experiences. Can parents share for their children? Can people, carers support autistic people who might be, for example, nonverbal to speak? And this was really contentious because from many people's perspective, that's just speaking over someone or speaking for someone instead of giving them an opportunity to speak for themselves. And actually working really closely with Susanna and another participant, James, has really demonstrated to me the vast importance of this kind of participatory research of involving people's voices and views and letting autistic people lead because they've come up with some solutions that I would not have thought of that I think are quite kind of ingenious ways of meeting such a difficult set of challenges. So I've been really, I've been a huge growth process for me. Well, I think for me, as George was saying, even as an autistic person, it's been very eye-opening, particularly with the aspect of who can report on whom. Research is definitely a passion of mine. And I think if you look back, it has not been done well for many, many years. Very male-focused. It took until I was 15 for me to get diagnosed with autism. And that's actually pretty early for a highly cognitively functioning female. Some go into their 50s before they get diagnosed. And seeing that there are other ways was just really exciting to me as that autistic person. But 
you know, these disparities between who can report on behalf of who, that there was kind of a, almost a light bulb moment because I, I guess I felt like I'd fought for that diagnosis. So I was very much like, oh, well, if you don't have a diagnosis, how can you say you're autistic? And suddenly I realized, wait, but you can? Because a computer algorithm can work out that I'm autistic in less than two minutes, but it took 15 years for humans to do it. And there's probably hundreds of thousands of other adults out there who know they are, but just haven't got that diagnosis. So I think for me, that was a real sort of eye-opening moment where I was like, okay, we should accept anyone who says they are autistic as being autistic, diagnosis or not. And I think that's kind of controversial in a way, but it was after talking to some of those people who had really fought to get that diagnosis that you kind of realize, okay, we have to listen to the people and not what the doctors say, because I mean, the whole assessment process is written just for men by men. But yeah, it's been really fascinating just generally looking at moderation and trying to sort of ask, well, you know, a lot is about perspective. If we say you're not allowed to do this, how is one person going to interpret that in comparison to a different person? Is everyone going to understand our rules in the same way? So that's definitely been an interesting thing to think about. And yeah, just making sure it's as inclusive as possible without having that issue of speaking on behalf of others and not Again, because of perspective, not necessarily telling the full truth, but what that parent or that onlooker thinks is the truth. So I'm thinking about open source design spaces and I'm thinking about open source. And in general, it's excellent to have everyone be able to talk. The issue is that it doesn't scale very well to listen to absolutely everyone. And you do end up needing to have some sort of democratic processes where you elect someone else to speak for you. This is how... Our countries work, for example. I'm not saying our governments work particularly well because they don't. But I'm really curious, in your project, how do you listen to everyone while also not burning out with the amount of feedback you're getting from all the people? You must have some sort of checks and balances on that process. And I'm really curious what they are. So obviously it's not possible to involve every single person's perspective equally, even if that might be an ambition. But what you can do, I think, is be very deliberate about how you redress some of the disbalances in representation that exist and think about what are the demographics or people or situations people might be in that means they might be likely to be excluded from research. So having very deliberate awareness of diversity as well as the metrics and choices for inclusion, basically the idea is to amplify the voices of those who are likely to be missed out from research in general and understand where the kind of vulnerabilities are of your own project. And this is a really imperfect solution. It's one that I think you need to keep constant vigilance about. In terms of how we did a kind of deliberative process of decision-making, but ultimately we have a line of responsibility because there's funded researchers who are doing this as their full-time job who it's appropriate that they should have responsibility to make sure progress is made and that deliverables are achieved. But with things like, for example, what would you exclude or include in a public published experience? We have gone through the process of having multiple discussions, collating that information into anonymized data sets, which are published openly so that everybody can see how that process has been done. So it sort of allow for scrutiny. And then we've used that information to come to judgments that are traceable. So there's kind of an audit of key decisions in the project 
that goes back to the feedback, comments, ideas of members of the community. And you can see where there's been differences of opinion and you can see how the judgments were made. For example, there are certain things that are directly contradictory that some people in the community would like and some people wouldn't like. So that decision-making process, the best I think that we can do is to have ongoing discussions, have an iterative process and have real transparency about the decision-making and involve autistic people in those decisions, not just inform them after the fact. Adding to Georgia's point, I think also in a sense, we have maybe sidestepped a bit of this bigger issue as we haven't yet had to deal with like this larger scale, given that we are still shortly before launching a prototype or an MVP of the platform for collecting at scale experiences. So, so far we've worked with a Raja rather small community of participants and really interacted highly with the smaller subset. And there, I think, as Georgia said, we put like a particular focus on engaging people that otherwise might not be heard and designing with these community members. But it's not necessarily yet at a larger scale as you might find in larger open source projects where everyone is just like shouting on GitHub. So we are not yet at the scale. And I think there's where George's points are particularly relevant or will be relevant of like, we can actually point to why we made those decisions and what we deliberated on before and say, we've done the best efforts to actually engage with people and with a diverse opinion, a set of opinions and made these trade-offs as we did for good reasons. So we kind of preempt some of these issues by engaging not too many people in the first place. <laughs> I think that's interesting that, I mean, I, in the back of my mind and the projects I'm planning to spotlight at the end is all the conversations that are happening right now about Mastodon as a platform. And I think, I mean, what you all are describing is the problem of the internet, just the sort of nature, because you're working with a population where this is so extra nuanced and it is like particularly the focus of this population that has been kept out of research about themselves, right? So it's like, it is sort of a, such a key point. It's so central to what you're working on right now. But I feel like, I mean, everything you're describing so far feels to me like lessons that could be applied generally to like moderation tools and transparency of decision-making tooling and things like that. So I was curious to talk a bit more like, literally, how are you doing it? Like, are you using open documents? Are you using a platform? Where does the documentation exist? Or like how you've actually designed that transparency and decision-making with the sort of platform work, if you can talk about that a bit. And yeah, I'm curious to hear more about it because I think it is actually just such a key point to design in so many ways, in so many aspects of the work that we're doing. Just following up on that before you say a lot, I really like this idea. Like I'm thinking in my head, like how this could be applied to open source. And we have code of conducts which sort of like apply to conduct after the fact, like it's an agreement you make, but it's sort of for issues. And I'm thinking about like a code of design. Here's how we design our spaces and here's how we have our product decisions. Here's how we make those conversations, well, which is a governance. different type of agreement. It's governance. I mean, yeah. I think like ultimately what we're talking about here is, is open source governance. And I'll drop links in from actually pointing back to sustained conversations from early 2020, the last in-person conference. We made this like governance checklist and a lot of it's around transparency and decision making. And then the other thing that I was thinking about is there's this community norms toolkit project out of a university in Colorado that I come back to a lot. That's great. So I'll drop both of those links in. But I ultimately what we're talking about here is governance and understanding what you're governing and who you're governing for. And, and it is a design process that I think people don't recognize 
is as labor, like as a community rural project is great. And it's something I come back to a lot and reference a lot because I think that's a great example of how these are design choices. Like literally the format of that tool helps you think through the fact that these are design choices within our communities. And I think there is this question about how you scale, but to some extent, yeah, I'm just curious. So to come back to the question, like tell us more about how you all are making it and how you're thinking about how that plays into the platform itself that you all are working on. Maybe Georgia can go into the details of how it works in practice. I just want to point out like maybe what sets Altspaces a bit apart is other open source. This, this project started very much from shared values and goals and not from immediately going something. And I think like for many open source projects and particular new open source projects that start, that's very, very different. You might have like the goal in place of you want like a specific tech issue solved somehow, but there's a lot less thinking about design in terms of governance. How do you design and implement governance? Because it starts out from such a small group of people that you maybe don't have to do this necessarily as rigorously as you should. And there's not a big incentive for, from open source perspective, wasting time on designing governance if you have no product yet, which I think sets all spaces apart as in this interface of developing open source tools, but also its research to some extent and it engage with the community we had to front load the governance discussions very much and could not just develop stuff and then figure out the governance afterwards. So I think that's like, in a way, an advantage we had by having out it before, which other projects might not have. And then I think that's just to keep in mind that there's like a big difference in that sense before I can go into the details. To tie that together with what Georgia was saying, we think of the design of the governance of the project as its own deliverable. So how do we actually empower autistic people or make sure that they're empowered in the process? And how do we do it as a community deliberatively rather than this being a kind of afterthought? Because there's a version which is go and elicit assent once you've already created something. And that's much easier to do than actually engaging people throughout the research cycle and the design process. So how this works in practice, we have a number of different techniques that we use. So we use GitHub and we discuss things on GitHub and that's all open. So you can see all of the comments where we're trying to work things out. There's like a lot of GitHub issues where me and Susanna have been talking about moderation and James and Lossie and other members of the project. And you can just see us kind of going into all of the detail, trying to figure it out. And that's all available. But GitHub is quite a difficult one for people who might not have a technical background. So we have fortnightly meetup sessions that they were on pause for a bit while we did some development work, but they're starting up again this Thursday. So we use that. We have a mailing list. We use kind of this mix, I suppose, of open resources like GitHub to work openly and to develop the platform and other community focused meetups and engagement sessions. We also have run lots of focus groups and workshops to tackle particular issues. When moderation emerged as a big theme and priority and a contentious issue in our focus group, we um, then set up a specific workshop to address that. And again, started to kind of look at it from the point of view of a community. So I think one of the most important aspects is to be prepared to be very flexible. It can make it harder to plan in advance exactly how 
you're going to structure things because you need to be receptive to the input of community members to change the design along the way, not just the design of the platform, but how things are done. So in the focus groups as well, we had a huge number of priorities listed by the community of features they would like for the platform, things that they wanted it to do. And the design, the specification for the platform can be linked back to those comments, which are publicly available on GitHub. Also um, Slack, we use Slack a lot. I also think another platform that we use that's sort of worth mentioning is that we do a lot of Google Docs, which obviously is available to all completely removes that issue of some people using Mac, some using Windows, and it means that all the notes that we've taken throughout our sessions, we have our weekly meetups and we take notes throughout. Any thought that we've been doing individually, we write in there. All you need to do is share a link and you've got the entire thought process right there for somebody else to see. And I think back to sort of the code of conduct, not sure whether this is relevant or not, but we've essentially designed it in a way that it's can be used as a template. So when it comes to that sort of open source aspect and sharing what we've done, people can take that and just alter it as is necessary for their platform, but they already have that template in place. So it's not a lot of editing that needs doing, it's just making it relevant to their part. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do with a lot of our processes. Our whole thing basically has just been, our process has been a template if you're working with people with additional needs or people who are marginalized to an extent and they can look back over everything we've done and be like, okay, so it started with focus groups. We'll do that. Then they analyze them. Then they made this decision because of that. And that's essentially how we've been working this whole time is trying to develop that template for how to do a really good participatory project. Yeah. And just adding to this, maybe as earlier, someone mentioned Mastodon as like the discussion about governance and discussions there. I think in a sense, another benefit potentially that Altspaces has is that it doesn't try to be a general purpose. We are not trying to make something that works for everyone, but that works for a specific community. But I think we are currently in the process of like trying to write up how we ended up designing the processes that work for this community to say, if you have a specialist community, it doesn't need to be autistic, it can be anyone. But if it's a non-general purpose community, this is how you can engage community members to design something that works for this particular community, which will probably look quite different from Mastodon, which is a one size fits all. Though Mastodon can try like with different servers to approach that you have a non-decentralized thing that is supposed to work for 8 billion people, then you need to make a lot more trade-offs than if you work with a smaller group of people. I think there's some interesting, just to pick up on things I'm hearing you all say that I think is really important, multiple modes of communicating and having conversations, like that's sort of a theme, which I think we see a lot in open source projects as well. So the idea that there's mailing lists, there's like transparent sort of threaded, there's transparent threaded conversations in multiple platforms, right? Slack, mailing lists, and GitHub that are like linkable, referenceable things. I think the template piece that Susanna was just talking about, I think is really key. Like there's little places where we see the design of things like that taking shape, like GitHub issue templates. That's a place where something like the template that Susanna, you were just describing could actually be an implemented tool for communities more broadly. GitHub has a framework for that, right? Maybe that template can be something that's used by others. I know in a lot of cases, like I run a community call where we use a fork of the Mozilla Open Leaders Google Doc <laughs> template 
And I think a lot of us probably do because there's many lines that go back to like Mozilla communities through all of these threads. <laughs> but there's something there that is about signaling and structure and consistency that's actually really important for community conversations, even when you're talking about the nuance or specialization needed within a particular focus area. So just to be clear, I totally agree with you about like, I think the purpose-driven community aspect, I think is really key and makes it in many ways like facilitates these conversations. But I'm always really struck by how much there is to learn from understanding how that works and how that could be applied. Because ultimately, like, yeah, Macedon's a tool, right? Or GitHub is a tool or a platform that we're using in different ways that is sort of general purpose designed. But we have all these ways in which we use it. Like it's a practice where we can share some, we can also call them tools, right? Like these templates or like this practice of having these multiple channels that actually allows us to say, okay, I want to use this for my purpose-driven community where that purpose might be an open source project or it might be, there's a great community that's sprung up around long COVID, which I can also drop a link into, but there's like a, participant-led research community on long COVID. There's a lot of parallels, whether it's like something that allows it to be a purpose-driven community, I think, that are good to be able to see and like learn from. I'd be really curious on Susanna's take of this as well, and yours, Bastian. There's, I think, a really interesting bi-directional learning to be gained between open source and open research. And in particular, with autism research, the whole history of autism advocacy influencing research and encouraging completely different methods of doing research. It's not by any means the default now, but it's becoming much more mainstream and much more expected and anticipated in autism research that autistic people will have more of a voice. And you can see that the processes and procedures for doing research are changing as a result of autistic people advocating for themselves. And I find that really exciting. And a lot of that ends up with some of the similar kinds of ideals of something like open source or open research, where transparency is really important, the ability to be open, the ability for new people to come and join and see what you're doing and learn from what you're doing. The idea that the results of your work or ongoing work can be shared and available for others. These seem to be ideals that have converged from these two very different areas. So I think there's a huge amount of potential for research communities to learn from open source, both the challenges, the things that can go wrong and the things that can go really right. And also for open source communities, potentially to learn from, for example, autism advocacy groups and from some of the learning about open doesn't mean open for everyone necessarily. There's some work to do to make sure that people feel included and can be included. Autistic people, unfortunately, have often much more difficult experiences online than other people might do. They're more likely to be scammed, more likely to be harassed and bullied. And also, though, really often depend on social media, online interaction for lots of their social connections. So you can see that we have this really vital challenge to address in terms of making sure that the spaces that are open are open genuinely for everybody, not just for people who are already technically competent or neurotypical or who are kind of in the privileged demographics. When I did my master's back in 2018, it was focused on benefits of Facebook for young adults with autism. And as part of sort of the side research for this project, I've been 
essentially doing literature review on the research that currently exists looking at social media and autism. And although there are a lot of benefits, there are also a lot of negatives. You know, anything new can be very hard to navigate, but particularly if you are an autistic person, there's also the fact that we all struggle with communication to an extent as autistic people. So online, it can be even harder. One thing I was looking into just recently was an aspect of trust and whether it's really safe for people with autism to be online and making friends online because they don't necessarily understand those cues. And actually, autistic people develop trust in a very different way to neurotypical people. So they tend to have a very strong bias based on what they believe is morally correct, which is often sticking to rules. And research has shown that normal working people, and there's never really a polite way to say it, but people who aren't autistic, their opinions on someone will change over time, whereas an autistic person will stick with that original opinion. So it is very hard. It is very easy to, I guess, persuade someone online that you are someone you're not, particularly if they are autistic, because if you say something nice and you tell them something nice about yourself, they're going to believe that. They have no proof against it. So those are some of the dangers that are potentially online for people with autism. They sort of additionally have to navigate. There's also the fact sometimes such as looking at bullying and one of the main pillars of bullying is the intention. An autistic person may not understand that something is doing being done with malicious intent. So them being hounded online by people that are being rude is more likely because they don't know how to prevent that from happening. So those are just some of the sort of concerns when people are online, particularly in social scenarios. It's just the internet's a massive, massive thing and it's very hard to get lost in that. The whole purpose of art spaces is this question of can we create somewhere online that is a safe, welcoming place for autistic people? So being conscious about the spaces that we create online and not just taking for granted that they're accessible and available for everyone. Susanna, you just brought up trust. And earlier, Georgia, you mentioned privacy. And I think all of these, this is such an interesting thing to me because I feel like just thinking about the internet, the internet broadly, like these same challenges are present. And one might say, hearing the problem that Susanna just presented, that like, oh, well, we just need to know who's autistic online and make sure that they're taken care of. And it's like, that's not the answer because <laughs> then you end up with all of these privacy issues. That's not actually the answer. That might be like an immediate reaction. It's like, oh, if we just knew more about each other or if we like had profiles where we self-identified in these ways, then things could work for us in other ways. And it's like, no, no, we actually just need tools for being able to flag issues, right? Or we need ways that people can get help a lot of the time. Or we need ways that we're identifying harassment on platforms. Because like those behaviors, we actually do know much more about. And we rarely actually think about how to work on them. Speaking to accessibility in the online world, something that we think about a lot as a side spin of accessibility is that accessibility for people in the future who are looking to do the same things that we are doing and maybe not start from square one. A lot of your transparent information is available, you know, on GitHub, in logs and things like that. Have you ever done any consideration to publishing information on a landing page or to make it accessible to people who might not be the most literate for GitHub and technical repositories? So I'll just quickly jump in because my sister actually works for high tech companies who 
basically help websites become accessible for a variety of disabilities. Yeah, there's many ways that sites can be made more accessible. It's not necessarily a point that we within this project are at yet, but she actually has given me the details of a colleague who specifically works with charities and things. So it's definitely something we're planning on looking at and making our site eventually as accessible as possible. We've already been doing some research design-wise so not for the repositories, but for the project itself into sort of what colors work best for people with any type of color blindness. We're trying to make it so that there's no issue of sensory overload, you know, no automatic videos, automatic sounds, anything like that. It's all a choice because we don't want our finished project to be overwhelming to the people that it's designed for. And that's why it's so important to get those that are going to be using it involved in that design process. But yeah, autism rarely comes alone. So it is definitely something that we've been thinking about sort of behind the scenes. It's just not necessarily something that we've got to yet. So in terms of the repository, we've tried to do a lot of kind of accessible readings with graphics. And there's a video, doesn't play automatically, as Susanna says, but you can kind of play a introductory video. And we did a github.io website for people who might prefer that kind of format to GitHub to make it less cluttered and confusing. So one of the things that some of the user testing kind of feedback we had on GitHub repositories was for some autistic people, they want to go through all of the information that's available in succession to make sure that they've got all of the context. And on a website like GitHub, that's not really (laughs) going to be a very enjoyable use of your time. It's a lot to take in. That said, I also think we shouldn't presume that it's going to be impossible for people. So Susanna, for example, has done a brilliant job interacting on GitHub. And there was like a learning process for her, for me. I was new to GitHub when I started on this project for James and other autistic participants who have been working with us there. So I think there's one element, which is if you can, upskilling people in a tool like GitHub can be a really good benefit to an open project like this. You want to share those skills, make those places as accessible as possible, but not being kind of naive about it and thinking this will be easy. So making sure that there are other routes. So I think that's a kind of twofold approach when using something like GitHub. Yeah, I was going to say, if you all have like a key learning resource you like, that would be a great project to spotlight. Bastion, if you want to jump in. To slightly expand on Georgia's point, I think we are also currently in the process of actually writing up how we designed our moderation features for like a more academic audience, as I think maybe similar to how like an open source project has all its different ways to reach its different audiences. Like that's another audience we want to really target is like researchers that may be interested in figuring out how to actually engage meaningfully with the population they are studying and co-investigating something with. So trying to reach those people as well. And then it's like, it's having it on GitHub. It's having landing pages, it's having videos. It's having academic papers for people that like to read the boring, dry things in academic journals. <laughs> so targeting really all the different places. We are trying to make it accessible to the different audiences and stakeholders we are engaging with. Awesome. The other design idea that I want to pick up on, that Georgia, you were just saying, that relates to like learning there and just to name it as a learning, because I actually... It's the kind of thing that could get lost in just being like, oh, this makes sense. And it's a learning for autism. But a design idea that comes out of the like linear aspect is like, what could it look like for there to actually, like all websites also publish a robots.txt or a sitemap, right? Like things like that. Like, what could it look like 
to define a linear way to navigate any GitHub repo or any website. So there can be the like coming back to multiple channels or multiple navigations. Some of that stuff could be actually like relatively easy to set up and provide accessibility in a way that could be huge for folks of just like the same way that you might have you define what a screen reader can process and in what order it goes through stuff. Like, could we define like the linear path for a site? I think is really interesting. Okay. This has been an amazing conversation. I think we could do, I don't know, 10 more podcasts just about this project <laughs> and all the work that you all are doing, but we are limited in our time. So at this point, I'd love to move to wrap up and go into our spotlight. On each episode, we spotlight projects that we are interested in or that have been helpful to us in our practice or just like that we like and want to highlight. And so I will turn to everybody to share your spotlight project. I can go just because I'm talking and then we can round it all out. But I'll drop some links in of things I'm reading. We mentioned Mastodon a bunch on this conversation. And there's one project in particular, which is a fork of Mastodon that I think want to bring attention to called Hometown. And so we'll have the GitHub link for that. And then also share in the notes some articles that people have been sharing that I'm interested to read. I haven't actually read them yet, but they're on my like reading list related to this conversation of like online community spaces that is in everyone's mind right now. So that is mine. Boston, do you want to go? So my pick is BioPython, which is like an open source library for doing molecular biology things in Python. And I pick it because that's really got me into open source many years ago. So I used to be a biologist by training. And the only reason I did a PhD in bioinformatics and work with computers these days are these folks, because it's an amazing community that's really welcoming and makes biology work in Python. And it's amazing. My pick was the Turing Way. It's another Turing project that was starting up around the same time as Spaces. So I saw it in its inception, some of the really early meetings, but it's not something, it's not my project. It's another project. But it's really, really fantastic. There's so many beautiful things about it. It's basically a really accessible guide to doing open research. But one of the main fabulous things about it is it's also this really warm and welcoming community where they have a really well-established onboarding process. And people have been really thoughtful about how they include people. So I find it hugely inspiring for that reason. And a genuinely supportive, encouraging space as well. So go and check that out if you haven't already. <laughs> Definitely worth a look. Well, I've put in Map Tool, which is actually it's a tool to build maps in. If you play RPG games, you can do it digitally, which obviously was something we're doing a lot throughout lockdown. But as someone with autism, like many, I prefer doing things behind a screen. It feels safe. It's a shield. And it's great that I've been able to continue playing these games with my friends using these tools that people have just decided to create and make available to us all. So if you're into D&D or anything similar, it's a really great tool to be able to play online and not have to create like an online account or anything. You just download it and you can build your maps. Mine is clinical-partners.co.uk. That was the first Google hit for, do I have autism? That I just Googled because I fixated on Susanna's comment that it takes two minutes. And so I apologize to everyone in this conversation for just not paying attention because I finally had someone else besides my friend Charlotte confirm that, yeah, I totally have autistic tendencies, which is really, really fascinating. So probably going to look that up. I would encourage everyone else to do the same. So cool. I feel like there's a whole thread of, I also have been thinking about that, this whole conversation of Susanna saying that a computer can diagnose you in like two minutes, but it took 15 years. And 
I want to have a whole other conversation about that. <laughs> Thank you for planting that seed. But it also speaks a lot to gender issues in medicine that Susanna also touched on of like, which I think is also an under-discussed subject, which we could also have, again, one of many more conversations about. So thank you for raising those issues as well. Thank you again, everyone, for being on the podcast. This is absolutely superb. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any thoughts on it, you can join us on our discourse at discourse.org, where you can feel free to chat to others about this. We'll have a thread for this podcast if you want to drop links or talk about it there. You can also email us at sosdpodcast at sustainedoss.org. We're also on Twitter. I think we'll get on Mastodon at some point. But feel free to email us or go to the host. If you want to talk to any of the guests, their information will be in the show notes, but you can find it at sosdpodcast at sustainedoss.org or just go to sustainedoss.org, of course, and just follow the links in a linear fashion if that's what you do. And please like this podcast on Apple, Spotify, etc., wherever you find it. And again, thank you so much to everyone for being on here. I hope you enjoyed it. Do suggest guests for us in the future and everyone else here. Have a good day.